Alright, welcome back everyone. It's Dermot here for an early Sunday morning recording on the 7th of 17th of January. Uh, joining me this morning is Roshin O'Shea. Hey. Dave Murphy. Hey. And Owen Burns. What's the crack? We have an absolutely packed out week of news to discuss, so we might just get right into it with the biggest story of the week, the Mother and Baby Homes report. So at this stage it's well covered, but uh, this week the Commission of Investigation report into the Mother and Baby Homes was leaked and then subsequently published by the government. It found that some 9,000 children died in Mother and Baby Homes between 1922, or sorry, yeah, 1922 and 1998, which was was about 15% of all those who entered the institutions. It also detailed the horrific conditions in which many of the women and children found themselves in, and most strikingly, I think, the uh, report's determination that no evidence could be found that women were forced into homes by church or state. And then we had the government, uh, specifically Martin and Josepha Madigan, at the press conferences seeking to like shift blame onto society at large rather than examining kind of the societal influence of the church and state and what, what they had how they influenced this whole process. So what what did people make of this? Um, honestly, I just have been like alternating between weeping and yelling all week. Like this whole thing makes me fucking furious. Um, it also doesn't help that in my personal case, I've been for the last few weeks researching and writing an article about the historical oppression of women in Ireland by the state and Catholic church for Rupture's Next magazine. So I'm just like head deep into a bleak bleak fucking rabbit hole um and what just pisses me off about it is i mean obviously the contents of the report is fucking shocking and this like institutional monstrosity is disgusting and infuriating um but just point after point of the government response is honestly what makes my blood personally boil like this thing yeah that you mentioned dearmit of them refusing to accept responsibility this shifting of blame onto other people, also this outright denial of witness accounts, where they say, oh, many witnesses gave blatantly incorrect testimonies. Um, There's also totally, they're just totally ignoring anyone who was forced into adoptions or any illegal adoptions that happened outside of mother and baby homes, which was incredibly prevalent as well in terms of like, women giving birth in hospitals, signing forms under sedation, also single mothers if they never stepped into these homes, so they're just not really talked about. And the bit that honestly gets me is, um, I can't remember who it was, but someone said that it would be unfair for compensation to happen because that would be the current generation taking on the, the wrongs of the past generation. As if, like, the survivors of these homes are not current. Like, not only are there many women who, many women and men who were born in these homes still alive, there are mothers still alive. They're not all gone. A lot of the nuns are dead. The women are not. Personally, there's a close member in my family who was in an industrial school. She's not even in her 60s yet. Like these women are still here and they're being gaslit and ignored and denied. And it's a really clear message, which is that we, the women of Ireland, can go fuck ourselves. I think what Rushing's saying there about it being a gaslighting kind of like project by the government is probably the best way of explaining it. I read through some of the report when I possibly could, and a lot of the explanations by the government are just pure, absolute drivel. I, uh, going back to that point you were making about how, you know, it's, you know, the financial redress for the past wrongs of a present generation paying for the previous earlier generations is 
absolute crap and that is just the nicest way of saying it i could say a lot worse things with a lot more vigor and a lot more aggression but it's it's actually so annoying because the point of these investigations is not to say to not clear the names of the people that are involved in it. any sort of inquiry the purpose of it is a retrospective look or current look at problems that are going on right by saying that these people cannot be punished for you know instances that they're not you know for people who aren't there anymore or who aren't involved in these institutions anymore will put current blame on the mistakes of the past is absolutely just crap and the thing is like the state is still involved with the church the state still gives money to the church to run hospitals to run institutions i remember reading in rupture it's something like one, uh, five institutions received one point uh is it uh, three one one billion euros alone i could be misquoting that comp uh, slightly but roughly about a billion euros to these institutions you know they're still connected and yet the government is saying, no, this is society, this is you, you, uh, your guys' faults. Like, the only way we can redress this is by seizing the lands of the church and using that as recompense to pe people who suffered, giving proper financial support. This gaslighting by the government is just absolute tosh. Yeah, I think, like, this report should be, like, expunged, like, the government should reject it. Because, like, over the last 10 years, there's been a change in attitudes in terms of this. We've had speeches in the Dáil from Enda Kenny recognising what happened to these women and children. And then, like, the official report comes out and it's this, like, attempt to blame everybody else, like, you know. So, like, I, like and I think the reactions, like, if you see, like, uh, Cora Corliss and some of the survivors who are saying that this just like undermines everything that they've gone through in their life like this can't be the official report on behalf of the state in terms of what happened because it totally just goes against everything that they've previously said and I think where they're trying to like hide behind is like you know like there was no official law by the state and like there was no official like role that the church had like officially in terms of doing stuff and they're trying to hide behind um well, there was no law that said we did it. Therefore, the state isn't isn't responsible. And I think if you look at um, you might know the guy, uh, what's his name, Liam Hogan. Uh, he's a historian and researcher yeah. down in Limerick. Uh, he has a really good thread where he points out exactly stuff going back, like like that TDs from like independent TDs and left wing TDs raised this back in the fifties, like you know, about uh, forced labour, about like women being trapped in these institutions so like the idea that the state or that nobody knew what was going on uh what what was a uh, was the reality like people did know what was going on and like they didn't take any action to prevent it like and trying to say that ordinary people should have taken action when like people within the state and politicians knew what was going on is just passing the book yeah i think it might have been michael that was saying on twitter like or diving into the government's kind of line of society all being uh, at fault. I mean, in a abstract sense, sure, society was at fault for the values that were prevalent at the time. But like, it's an insult to say to pretend that like the literal state and between the state and the church didn't play like a foundational role in constructing like what society was or what the norms were, what was acceptable, and that families like weren't ashamed of single mothers in a vacuum. 
like that whole pressure was put on them by the kind of moral landscape that the church created and was rubber stamped by the state and that's especially more so like after the kind of revolutionary years in Ireland or after the like 20s you would have had the state making an uneasy or an easy alliance with the church to kind of repress people and and push away uh, their obligations so like of course you should condemn people for allowing it to happen or the society at that time but we know that, like, in the first instance, responsibility lies at the institutions that create the kind of norms around all this. Yeah. And see, I would even argue that it's more, that it's deeper and even more sinister than that, right? So as part of my research, I've been looking into how exactly the Catholic Church got so much influence in Ireland. Because for me, it's always been sold as, like, it's it's just Irish, isn't it? It's just our, like, you know, in Mexico, they have, like, quite colourful depictions of the Virgin, and here we have, like, sexual repression. That's, like, Ireland's style of being Catholic. Um, But what I found out is when you look back and back, it's actually just intricately linked with capitalism in Ireland, and that's the real source of Catholicism's power. It's not necessarily able to gain that power on its own. So in my brief research that I've done I've seen that like pre-famine we had controlled fertility we had herbs for inducing abortions we had cervical caps made out of beeswax we had poems celebrating how great it is for women when they have a husband that gets them laid like this was normal in Irish society and we had Catholicism we just didn't really care about it as an institution there were more Catholics before the famine because obviously most of them either died or left and yet This prevalence was not there. What changed that is after the famine, when everyone died and left, there was all these family pots to be bought up. So the percentage of huge tenant farmers shot up. I think in 50 years after the famine, we went from 18% of Irish farms being uh, 15 acres or over to 58% of them. It was a huge, huge shift. And as we know, we're living through a trauma currently. There is a chance when you're living through a trauma that a totally new and often problematic ideology can get its claws in. It was really hard for people after the famine to live, to deal with this trauma. And the church offered a spiritual explanation. It offered consolation for the people who did survive. And it had this chance to get in there. So it grew. Also the larger tenant farmers um, getting richer and richer meant that what could they do with that money? They could send their sons to become priests. So priests are overwhelmingly of this middle class. And it's this tandem of power because Catholicism doesn't necessarily crave control and power in and of itself on its own. It needs to be paired consistently in all the countries that you look at with a capitalist state. It can't do it on its own. So you have this training, essentially, these like these homes and the Magdalene laundries and the industrial schools and even primary and secondary schools are essentially training grounds, historically, for the servants and the labourers of the middle classes. So we have this pairing and this monstrous shaping of society, this shaming, and then like they have the goal now to imply that they're fulfilling a need that society wouldn't fulfill for these mothers. And people are saying, yeah, I mean, like it's a fair point that yes, in general society is at blame for the, the values that they held, but this is after decades and in some circumstances centuries of brainwashing and threats and manipulation and even families who did want to protect their pregnant daughters their pregnant sisters their pregnant unmarried partners they essentially had no choice they would have the priest at the door telling them they were wronging god that it was their christian duty you would be ostracized and yes okay those who resisted cool it would make a really good steven spielberg movie but 
in reality, that's not really a fucking option for people. So of course they're bullied into giving up these women that they love, that they want to protect. Like one of the the most interesting things about it, and you're kind of hinting at it about how people had no choice to give it up, is how many of the kind of like people who are saying, no, this is fine, this is grand, are kind of like the most arch-Catholic types of people. Now, there's a certain party leader, I'm not going to mention his name because I don't feel like he deserves advertising, was sitting saying that because of this, you know, many, many women would have been shipped off and they would have been sent to England and, like, there would have been thousands and thousands of deaths. And the government kind of reflects this when they say in the report that, oh, the passing of Article 8 was one of the more kind of, like, uh, the more kind of forgiving periods. I read that and I was so baffled by... Yeah, yeah, uh, Roshan, you you can probably come in on this much better than I can, but, like, like it it just kind of shows, as you were saying, like, the inherent link between kind of, like, the state capitalism and the, the priesthood, you know, using it as a method of control. Because, you know, there was an instance where women were completely and utterly forced down. They were had these laws passed against them, and yet they were still getting blamed. Exactly, and I will come in on this because it's something that I have literally only just learned this week and I was like, wow, that's so fucked and manipulative and classist. And then I hear the reverse of it and it trying to be spun in the totally different direction, which is what I've learned about the Eighth Amendment this week, is that um, there were thousands and thousands and thousands of women going abroad for abortions before the Eighth Amendment came in to, to ban it in Ireland. Um, for a figure, I mean, obviously the Eighth Amendment was before this, but just so people realise how prevalent it was, in 2010, the amount of women in Ireland who went abroad um, for abortions was 12 a day. Like, it's not the odd happening. Um, And interestingly, there was no anti-abortion movement or no organised anti-abortion movement in Ireland until the Eighth Amendment was beginning to be proposed because it was a resistance to the idea of abortion at home and also free. So it is inherently classist because people could afford to go abroad and get abortions. It wasn't a problem if you were of a certain class. It's only once it became available for those who are already the most oppressed in this system. So it's absurd to say that it brought this tolerance. People knew. People knew about it. It was only when it was for the poor that this thing came up. Yeah, and just on the the government's kind of like... Uh, separation of themselves in this there's uh, it's left out like in context I think Diana pointed out on Twitter that like many of the religious orders which ran the mother and baby homes are still in control of state funded healthcare services like the instance that she highlighted was the same order of nuns that ran Bessborough Home are on the board of the state funded parent and infant unit that helps decide like when to take babies into care and what babies and, and things like that and I think that's been largely omitted um, that that command still occurs and I think a key demand going forward like Owen was saying is just like that full separation is needed between the church and state um, but the, there was that kind of cynical gloss from the government and, and they, did anyone see that they even used the, the report coming out to both Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael use the controversy around the report to readmit their senators who broke the COVID rules during Golfgate first on the Fianna Gael on the day when it came out and Fianna Fáil the day after knowing that like it would just get sucked up in the, the storm around this yeah and I think like do you know like it's like the last mother and baby home closed you know like I think the end of the 90s or the 90s um, but like the same type of attitude 
that existed then has been carried on like you know in particular like like so like single mothers aren't locked up in institutions anymore and their children aren't taken off them but like there is still a stigma against single mothers like um like i remember growing up like so back in like late 90s noughties like it was a bigger thing like it was more to the fore but it still actually is really uh prevalent like if you think about it so like i was looking there like so in 2012 like so you know, relatively recently, like Finnegal TD was accusing like single mothers of being the major drain on uh, social welfare. If you look at like, say, in terms of housing, how single mothers are treated, like when uh, you hear about discrimination in terms of like HAP and going around with landlords trying to get somewhere to live, uh, you know, the, these creepy landlords trying to abuse their position over like single mothers because like they think they're in a vulnerable position. So like this, like, like people can say oh yeah we moved on and then like on the one hand and be like this is terrible and then on the other hand they're like ah oh, these like you know like welfare queens all these types of stereotypes that they've created like so like the whole idea and the stigmatization hasn't actually been like removed completely like you know and that's like still part of the thing that we have to fight uh, against now yeah um i agree and it's like i find what's the most shocking about the more i learn about this is it really informs the things that are still going on in Ireland because again there is sort of this thing where it's like it's in the past it's awful it's disgusting it's mantras but like now we have like we just voted an abortion and we just voted to shorten divorce and um like you can have gay marriages and blah 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 so like everything's fine now right but like I don't know like when you look at again in terms of women for instance like how demeaning it is still to get the morning after pill in Ireland I think gets another really sinister dimension when you look into this history of yeah women and motherhood and what that meant like if you go to France for example and go hello I would like a morning after pill they go yes four euro will there be anything else madam whereas in Ireland you have to do this yeah incredibly demeaning interview with someone who's not your doctor you don't have a choice you have to give them personal and medical information or you're not allowed to get it. Or even like on another aspect of like Catholic control in Ireland. Do you guys remember after the Murphy report came out, this young fella said up and was like, count me out. Did you guys ever see this? Um, So basically the idea was um, once you are admitted into the Catholic church, unless you are- um, Yeah, I'd seen that on Twitter. You cannot leave. Um, there are certain loopholes yeah so it's like it's quite difficult to leave um i personally am you're there for double life um so i'm like i can't get out i know um they are not gonna like me bro um but so this young fella set up count me out because people wanted to be able to at least symbolically go fuck this i'm out of this organization even if yeah the catholic church consider you in it blah, blah 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 so he set up this thing where you could put down your name and say, I no longer consider myself a Catholic if you didn't want to wait for the census or whatever, as, yeah, this symbolic action. And it was seized by canon law within, I think, days or weeks. Like, the site does not exist anymore. The Vatican shut it down, this Irish site, (laughs) to just symbolically say, no, I'm good, man. And, like, it's so it's not in the past. Like, it's still so, so huge. And the more you learn about it, the more you realise that, like, there are tendrils creeping back into the past of everything that's still a bit iffy like it's bigger than it looks i think one thing that kind of summarizes as well is i got a message from a scottish friend um just last night actually where she sent me i think it was now this her talking about the report and she she sent me this message saying does the irish government and catholic church think they can just sweep this under the rug and no one will notice 
my response to her was just yes. That was the end point of it because that's what that's what they believe. And the thing is, like ultimately, it was across the island as well. You know, Stormont after the report came out the day afterwards, Michelle O'Neill uh, was being questioned by Christopher Stalford, you know, leader of Champion in the North and one of the DUP MLAs talking about how, yes, this report is shows the consequences, how awful it is. And they were being quite apt about it and like talking about like, this is really serious. And there actually is a, a bit of underwork by the Irish government on this now. You could be politicking, but also they were mentioning about how when they were doing their institutional, uh, historical and institutional abuse report, which is currently being worked on at the moment, many of the homes that were being brought up in the South were also being brought up in the North, the same institutions, the same organisations. So like it goes back to what Roisin was saying that this is just, it's island wide as well as both in the, uh, just a, a Southern issue as well, because it's affects women across the thing. You know, our, uh, Northern Ireland only got some of, you know, basic women's rights like abortion just two years ago not even then you know it, it, it just highlights how kind of ingrained in Irish society is and how like it is even uh, pre-independence you know this is an issue yeah just one thing in the Sunday papers today that I was reading is uh, Justine McCartney has or Justine McCarthy has uh, an article about this that's uh, like it's quite shocking like um, so it's like that like medical trials were conducted on children like uh in the in the homes like so uh like they had like there's two specifically named doctors like one was the head of i think the medical council and one was the head of uh some section of like medicine and ucd who were being paid by companies to conduct trials on the kids in in terms of like vaccines like they're doing trials for like vaccines like you know i think what's the vaccine you get now when you're a kid like the three in one for measles mumps and rubella like they were trying yeah. to get a five and yeah. one they were doing trials of different kinds of like milk for babies um, and like these two doctors specifically uh, got the equivalent of in today's money like 60 grand for conducting these trials on these kids who had like no ability to give consent in the cases where their, where their mother was in the same home the mother was never asked to give consent the kids don't like the kids who are adults now don't know any effects that this had on them like does it have any long term health effects and like this was like against like the um, like the fucking Nuremberg laws that were implemented like after like World War 2 like and this was being conducted in Ireland into like the the 60s 70s and 80s and then when the Lefoy report in like 15 years ago or whatever was going to look into this these two doctors went to the high courts and got it blocked so that i couldn't look into like the medical trials like so yeah and now they're 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 dead now so like they're not gonna get uh but like it's absolutely unbelievable that like you just like you know like in your worst dreams you think oh okay it was this home they were separated like the kids were adopted like and you know i mean you're like fucking hell but then like it's like yeah yeah we, we did medical trials on them as well like it's absolutely fucked yeah i was listening to the um Irish Times podcast last night for my sins and they had um, one of the survivors on Elizabeth Coppin and she was saying that like all through her life she's about 70 now she's just been looking for medical records to know what vaccination she had as a kid or anything like that and can't get access to any of it uh, because it was advised to Catherine Zappone when 
Fine Gael were in government last time that such a change would require constitutional change so it's just been on the back burner the whole time um, and obviously the Irish Times people were like trying to placate her being like oh yeah it's obviously bad but in the context of society at the time but she was like quite angry saying like I don't trust any of the go- government any of the politicians to make this right because they've had chance after chance we tried to have a um, a reunion thing like three or four years ago um, to try and get to the bottom of this and it was pushed off uh, until they put pressure on and even at that none of the government were there to, the, to discuss it with them so they've just been hitting brick wall after brick wall on it uh, so it's just like it's very bad it's left people in an awful state even now and that's going to have influence on like their families as well I know there's a campaign starting up about access to the adoption uh, documents as well, which is um, starting. So I know a lot of people can't campaign and do a lot of the things that they usually would be going onto the streets. But like, I think there is going to be a positive outcome on this where people are going to be demanding the state to actually, uh, the state and the Catholic Church, excuse me. To I'm going to look that up now. It's a... Uh, yeah, there's uh, a petition. We might stick it in the show notes. I will, yeah. Birth certs for adoptees yeah. now. Yeah, because um, again, like I've seen tweets from people here since saying that like my... I've had family members who were looking for children that they, you know, they lost in these industrial homes and they just can't get access. It's so grim. It, uh, that's it at the end of the day. But they can't get access to the the documents. So there's now a campaign to try and get access to these documents so people can try and reconnect. So there could be a positive outcome on this. I just, uh, there just needs to be a lot of underground campaigning and a lot of grassroots work on it. And definitely it should be a good outcome. Yeah, I'll stick the link to that uh, petition in the uh, in the show notes, and if there's anything else, obviously. Um, but like, I think we'll probably move on to the next thing. I think the other major ongoing story at the moment is just the immense surge in COVID cases. So over the last two weeks, Ireland has been number one internationally in the spread of COVID cases proportional to our population. On the last podcast, we discussed the correlation between the growth and the government's decision to ignore the public health advice, open up non-essential businesses, gastropubs and all the rest in December. And following on from what we were saying, I think what we were saying about the mother and baby homes, you see a similar rejection of any fault from the government and a placing of blame on like an amorphous public or like society as a whole. You had like Donnelly, Martin and Varadkar at different times over the last two weeks appearing on the media just to refuse... To say uh, to accept that they made any mistakes that in leading to Ireland's worst performance. And yesterday, I think we had like three thousand two hundred cases with sixty additional deaths, and that's all happening in the context and like a breakdown in many of the hospitals. News of new strains and variants emerging from like Brazil, I think it was, and Japan too, and some issues now with the vaccine rollout. Uh, what do people think of this so far? Well, it's just like any time Ireland's like top of the league for anything, it's usually for something bad. Like, you know? <laughs> yeah. And I think like this is just continuing the trend, you know. Um, I think that Eurovision. Yeah, 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 yeah. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you won it. Now you have to host it. Like, you know, um, it's terrible. Um, yeah, but I, I think like obviously it's at a major crisis point now, and I think just like yesterday, what Tony Hulahan was saying was that like we've got the cases down from the 8,000 they were and this is like after like I think we're in two weeks of like level five now um, but that they're not like they're starting to plateau off but they're plateauing at a very high level so around 3,000 but if they plateaued at 2,000 a day even and then you work out that like I think they say that like 4% or 5% of people who get it need some form of hospital treatment and the hospital's already at crisis point that if it continues on at 2,000 a day for a period of time that by the end of the month um 
like the cross the hospitals are going to crack if they haven't cracked uh, by then so like that's going to be a crisis like you know and I think the government are essentially trying to get out ahead of it a bit by saying um, you know oh well it wasn't our fault the idea that we were going to have a meaningful Christmas and then that um, that like part of their argument is that they went from level 5 to level 3 that's what Faragher said yesterday but we weren't actually at level 5 before Christmas like they they they'd tweaked it so much that like you still had so much stuff open so it wasn't that like they went from like a strict lockdown to like level 3 and they were back like they, they had been like at a certain level and then when they opened things up for Christmas like I think like like what was the whole purpose of it and it was just to get money into to like it wasn't the idea of like well you're going to have a Christmas because that was curtailed anyway because people those restrictions on visits it was purely to try and get like uh, parts of hospitality and like the retail industry to like you know like the greasy tail fumbling the greasy tail to get money going through them and like now we're paying the price for it and that was like like the voices who are calling for it were politicians business reps and journalists whereas the vast majority of people like if you look at it like 80 odd percent of people were in favour of like maintaining or maybe not 80 like it was it was a majority of people were in favour of strict uh, restrictions to get rid of the virus so I took the government have to take the blame and you know, they're obviously trying not to but neither are journalists trying to take the blame as well for the role that they played acting as cheerleader exactly and like just a small aspect like this sort of little pearl that I think puts it into perspective for me is I think it was was the man himself Faradkar um, that was going on about how like look things are bad but we don't know how bad they would have been if we had followed uh, NFET advice and opened socialising instead of hospitality. We'll never know if it would have been worse. And he's trying to totally spin it. And you're just like, were we always at war with Eurasia? Like, I'm pretty sure that things are terrible now. And this is just totally deflecting things. And again, is like utter gaslighting and just insulting. I think uh, Cora Kinsella made a really good point about how in other circumstances if this was allowed this would be you know the end of a government and criminal action but we just you know they get away with it because they can and even they keep lying through their teeth different uh, reasons about why cases keep on increasing like in the first instance it was oh the party myth we all partied we all did this we all did that right then in the next instance it was the UK variant and even uh, the WHO you know Mike Ryan came out and said that it wasn't the UK variant it was due to the fact that the government opened up social interaction um, in the you know in shops and bars and gastropubs and stuff like that and that's what increased it you know the government keeps lying over and over and over again and we suffer because of it yeah, what struck me, like, between this and the mother and baby homes, I think it's, like, the standard kind of neoliberal response of trying to, like, portray themselves as just, like, a, a mediator between the public and businesses and that, like, they had no influence over the process. What happens with the mother and baby homes was on society. What happened with this crash or the crash in 2008 was public partied and that's what caused it. And what's happening now after December was that they didn't have any influence over decision but they did try and mediate things as much as they could and because we opened up it was an unavoidable situation we had it between that and the the new strains and i think this avoidance is kind of media like what dave was saying is bolstered by the media just being happy enough to let them go away with this although not in all aspects like i did see i think it was richard chambers the other day questioning stephen donnelly of like oh did you ignore the public health advice and then he says no and then he gives him the exact public health advice and says like well how did you not 
ignore this when this is what was advised and this is what she's actually done um and he just continues like obviously lying through his teeth um yeah it's just it, it's pretty shocking but it is it is the the normal response seemingly from the government at this stage to just push themselves away from the picture yeah but like i, I mean like they're trying to push themselves away from it but like this goes back to like october or wherever when Varadkar came out against Neffet, like and you know, publicly slapped him down. So there's been this whole thing uh, going on. And Stephen Collins, actually, in the Irish Times, had this, like, bizarre article where he was saying, like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, the government are trying to bolster Neffet and it's the public who are revolting against Neffet and that's what's happened. And it was the exact opposite, like, you know. Um, like, I'm, I mean, he's just a Fine Gael, um yeah, mouthpiece at this mouth, stage. Mouthpiece. You wrote that book about yeah. him saving the world. Um, but but like I think like if you look at like the last week in particular, it's really exposed the government's like strategy in terms of that they've put all their eggs in the basket of the vaccine, and between now and the vaccine being rolled out, which they seem to be making uh, hames out of, um, like there is no strategy for being able to continue to live with you know this idea of living with the virus because you can't choose to have everything opened up and not have cases and i think if you look at like there's some figures about when they did open up like they're trying to say well oh we opened the economy because that's what people wanted and then it was up to people's personal responsibility not to go and shop but like they had remember they had the campaign like well if you go to a restaurant and you can claim your uh money back from revenue on the tax and on the vat on your your food like so the idea that like like they open stuff up and like that they have no responsibility to say well this shouldn't open but then they opened it up but then they actively encouraged people like with this campaign that was widely advertised that we'll give you tax back when you go and spend so much money in these places like so they can't like wash their hands of it at this stage um also like you're you're highlighting a very interesting thing about the media is because i remember when the cases were starting to reach their peak and it, it kind of became international news that you know ireland was at the highest per capita covid cases in the world you know the irish times the majority of their front cover pieces were about the coup in the united states yeah. and yeah it's important world news and it's very but like something like seven out of the eight articles were about the coup? that's their opinion page writ large for like the last year anytime there's an issue in Ireland it's always Brexit in the UK or Brexit in the US get like yeah. the main focus there's no criticism of Ireland or very little and even they're not even challenging the government on making the aims of the vaccine programme like not to be a bit coy, uh, coy about this but the, the north is doing better on vaccinations than what the south is currently I think we've got like 3.5% mm. of the initial population and you know you know things are bad when the north's doing better on that but yeah it just it just kind of proves how um, lacking the media is on challenging the government and they're just effectively whitewashing every possible chance that they can yeah I, I think there's like a there's one specific article that I wanted to have a little read through as an example I think what we talked about and that's by uh, one and only Pat Leahy from the Irish Times from January 9th and in the title he states that like it's proposed around like that it hangs in the balance if the pandemic will change the political landscape and he goes through how the financial crisis was a great disruptor of Irish politics and asks if the pandemic could have like a, a similarly revolutionary effect, although not in the way we'd hope. Uh, um, and he, he says, like most of it is is rubbish, but for uh, our purposes, I think the most revealing parts come in the second half where he gives his own kind of assessment of things. And I think it's, it's what we've seen from a lot of the pundits up to this point. And he says like, 
My own view is that the government had no choice but to open social and economic life before Christmas. If the pubs and restaurants hadn't been opened, there would have been a bacchanalia of parties at home. Like, uh, Pat, Pat Lee does that thing where he, he says, like, a, uh, a bacchanalia of, um, you know, parties and stuff like that is what caused the issue. When, you know, in reality, it is still back on the government. And this just kind of proves what kind of the, like, the likes of Pat Leahy and other kind of commentators do, which is whitewashing the government's mistakes for, like, a connection between, the, like, the media classes and, the, like, the governing classes. It's, it's baffling. One, like, tiny little thing, and I think it is, I just want to mention it because I think it is closer to the beginning of the article. I know the, the worst of it, the guts of it are in the second half. But I think early in the beginning, there's one little two-letter word that he uses where he's like, if the crisis get worse, yeah. gets worse, mm. it could leave permanent scar. Oh no, we guys, this might not be fine. And it's like, loads of people are unemployed for the loads of people are dead this year. Like, <laughs> loads of people are dead. Loads of people are grieving. Loads of people are like, like, you know, even in terms of me, I'm quite privileged in how like 2020 treated me, but I'm unemployed for the third time. I haven't seen my family in a year. I'm supporting friends who are grieving the loss of loved ones and afraid of losing other ones. Like what, what planet does this if come from? And if it gets worse, it will. It's like, no, it got worse. It's done being worse. It's getting worserer, but we've gotten to the worst that leaves permanent scars. Like, where have you been? I think the worst for them is if the entire population's wiped out, you know? Like, as long as they're fine, it's grand. Because, as you said, there's going to be a mental health impact of this. I know plenty of people who are now suffering, who are trapped in houses accommodation on their own because that's just how it is we've just came out of you know well we well, haven't even came out of you know the recession in 2008 people are still suffering the economic consequences of it we've got a pandemic on top of that which is going to have more economic consequences but they're saying everything's going to be fine you know business is normal everything should be grand but like i think like part of this article that lee he has is like a response to like an absolute battering he got on a twitter like over an article he had pre-christmas where he mm. was ar- like he had him and a number of other irish times people and like people across the media generally had articles where they were like saying look now we need to reopen you know um and like then Pat Leahy in particular over Christmas got like walloped out of it and then like he came back and he was like oh I haven't been on Twitter in a few days I see that you know uh, people, people are taken, unhappy yeah, you know <laughs> and like he obviously was on Twitter because his phone was obviously like, <laughs> you know, like, glowing 24-7 um, but like so like this article like, is a response to like him getting walloped out of it on Twitter and like he doesn't give the arguments that were made against it he's like giving one side of an argument so you don't know what happened on Twitter you read this article, you're like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, uh, fair play, Pat. You, you, you're missing one, you're missing one half of the argument, like, you know. Um, and I think like he does stuff. He's like, well, nobody would have seen this amount of cases. Yeah, coming, I have like, that part know? here. It's gas. He says it was plain, like retroactively trying to say, like, oh, well, who would have known? It was plain that there would be a price to pay for the increased cases in late December and restrictions in January. That was the implicit trade-off understood by everyone. Yet nobody suggested the price for Christmas would be so severe. Obviously, no one would have been happy to pay it. Even Rise TD Paul Murphy, the doll's most consistent advocate of a zero-COVID strategy, who warned repeatedly about opening hospitality, foresaw only 500 cases a day in Christmas. In fact, there was twice that number. For all the fierce finger-pointing, neither Murphy, nor Holohan, nor Philip Nolan, nor anyone else was warning of several thousand cases a day. And I mean, obviously no one pinpointed the exact 
like number that was going to happen but Paul was saying at that time that like this is going to go widely out of hand and we were being advised by Neffet that it was going to go widely out of hand but he's trying to say now like oh well we knew it was going to get a little bit worse but I never knew personally when I was saying it was the right thing that it was going to get this bad yeah and I think it's like like part of it is how I think like like people like Pat Leahy see politics and elements of the media so like if you look at it like before before Christmas like take for example this whole thing everyone was having house parties that was put forward um, around like when the meat plants were were yeah. open um, and then it was like we'll reopen workplaces because business needs it and then like all the cases were like private household cases and like people weren't like people were getting case like COVID off people in their own household but it came into the house from outside like it didn't like break into the house at night like you know you woke up in the morning <laughs> COVID was waiting to jump on you like you know as you came <laughs> down the stairs like <laughs> um, so like it was being brought in and like it's how they see politics like they see it as like a balancing between uh, like the political class and the business class and they're the people that are listened to and then the people on the bottom are the people who don't know better and we saw this during the austerity years where it was like we have to have austerity and they all went out and said like well there's hard choices to be made people at the bottom are populists they don't know what they're talking about you know and that it's like politicians and the business class who know best and like even this week the financial times had an editorial where they had to like lash themselves out of it because like they were like yeah we are wrong on austerity hopefully they don't make the same mistake oh, again oh i've seen that yeah <laughs> just trying to slip that yeah. in like oops sorry about that and, one everyone I, 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 and like i think like for people like um for for these like political commentators who are supposed to be good at reading they always miss out on the voice of like the vast majority of people so like they look at it as politicians and the business class therefore the business class are calling for it the business class are in the media 24 7 therefore they're the interests that are represented but when you look at the opinion polls like the vast majority of people didn't want stuff to reopen they wanted stuff to be kept kept safe and like they just ignore it and it's the same they ignored it during repeal where they were like oh this this will be close like uh, you know, and then they were trying to present this new Ireland had been born when it had existed for ages. It's just that they didn't know about it. And like you look at stuff like water charges, of course people will pay like two quid a week for water. They just totally miss everything because like they're only focused on one particular section of society and it just skews all their all their analysis. Yeah, exactly. And like like you pointed out about the referendum and they're like oh this new Ireland that's been born it's like yeah well that's very convenient for you to be like we are the midwives of this new Ireland when it's like no no this has been around don't take credit for it um and also like when the majority is present in the media especially over covid there's this weird sneering tone like like you know fucking spin man pat i think had another article later in the week and he has this quote that i've written down because it honestly has just like baffled me where he goes one of the peculiarities of this country is that people think the state is useless at most things, but nonetheless expected to perform wonders to improve their lives and society. When it's like, well, yeah, like they like campaign on the idea of improving lives and society. So we elect them hoping they will improve our lives and society. And it's this weird tone where it's like any because yeah, the media like does not criticize our politicians unless it's very safe and very trendy to do so. But there's also this undercurrent where people who do talk about it are cynical, where it's like, oh, well, there's always gonna be cynical people who think that like, you know, they didn't do their best or isn't it great Leo Varadkar was a doctor for like 20 minutes a week is bless his heart when it's like people who were like, no, I think that's a spin move are presented as cynical. When like, 
I don't know, it's this spineless, shameless and sneering tone for people who like, there's nothing less cynical than wanting things to be better, than wanting to improve the like problems that are there. Yeah, I, I think what Dave was saying, like, that's all true. And these people are wrong, but I don't think they're wrong in a vacuum. Like, people often question, how do they get these things so wrong? And I think an aspect of it is that, like, they are surrounded by government, people they know in the government, business types, all that sort of stuff. And that obviously influences their own perspective and they have their own biases. But I also think that, like, they implicitly play a function as well. Like, I think they see themselves as portraying the or like buffeting the actions of the government to the public who like might not understand what's really going on in the inside they miss the intricacies and it's up to us to to portray it in like the right balanced way that kind of west wing polish of it um and i I think that's an international function of the media to act as like that arm of the state and to polish off actions um of like ministers or, or the government or even like big business and then while at the same time punching out of things that are outside the norms which is often like the socialist left or whatever and that's why you see that bias come through and I think you can see that in in this next line where he's saying uh, you can argue of course that the government should have foreseen it but you cannot argue that they did not and chose Oh, and instead chose to ignore it. So he's, like, precluding the idea that anyone could reasonably think that they understood the difficulties, but they chose to, like, downplay the risk, or that they chose to make a different uh, decision because it favoured, like, a different sector of society. Um, So it's just, like, that's interesting, I think. There's a funny part as well, because he says... uh, this is his citation for all of this the private view of one senior health expert is that socialization got us up to 1000 cases a day and the new variant did the rest that won't be definitively known for some time and i mean well, like what senior yeah. health expert there's been plenty of senior health experts again there's no there's no credentials there's no nothing like this could be any sort of health it could be a pediatrician it could be a you know <laughs> it is mad because one health expert has this opinion that's the only opinion that you know the masses should hold effectively it it's complete uh, madness what's your man's name from who who came out during the week um, ryan is it mick ryan yeah and he was the one like came out and said my own country has been pretty crippled um but let me add that this was not due to the uh, this was due to increased social mixing and reduction of physical differencing uh, distancing. He said the new variant strains have not been a driver of transmission, and I mean that's coming from the WHO. It's also come from Neffet at the start in December at the time and now in retrospect. Yeah, and that's just completely shut out. It, it it it's hilarious when like you have like you know like people who are experts who like they'd usually quote with confidence like the, the media would yeah. quote with people with confidence um, do you know like so say when uh, in particular when uh, you know when it was everything was like everything is going brutally in the UK now and like yeah. Ireland was comparing itself to the UK or to uh, the US and like they quote the WHO was like the WHO says you know X, Y and Z about how bad With a little name drop yeah about how bad they're handling it over there you know but then when they say something about how bad it's being handled over here it's like they're just like some like sceptic or fringe guy you know and they're like yeah this guy Ryan from the WHO <laughs> doesn't know what he's talking about <laughs> and they're trying he, to like probably, yeah. defend he probably is generally happens. quite favourable to the government if he's in WHO I can't imagine he's too I mean uh, Leahy actually summarises that towards the end of the article as well where he points out that the the government just needs to keep pointing to the United States and the UK and point out how badly they have handled it constantly over and over and over again 
So yeah, again, it kind of just summates sum that. But like, there was a classic example there, like a few days ago, last week or the week before, where like uh, Boris was like, "Yeah, yeah, we're gonna give people like the first shot of the vaccine," and then like, "Oh yeah, I know." Like the company said, "Give it a second shot within 21 days," but we're gonna give it like six weeks later because we want to <laughs> spread it out to everybody. And like the papers are like, "Ah, oh, fucking Boris at it again," you know, mad ideas. And then like over in Ireland, like two days later, it's like, "Well, you know, should we not consider it? You know, it might be a good idea." And it's just <laughs> yeah, like, we. we s- <laughs> Britain will do it 28 days later and we'll do it 27 or 26 which is better than them 28 days is an awful choice of words there like like, like that 28 days later, yeah. I know oh god yeah like can they not smell the fucking iron I got uh, it's actually funny that they were um, the point about like how oh yeah we want to distribute it to as much people as we possibly can but I got I actually got sent a text just before we started recording here of a pal who's living in Scotland of a it was a report between a doctor in Oldham in England. I think I'm pronouncing that Oldham. Where, yeah, where the doctor was getting absolutely hammered by the media for giving for bumping homeless people up on the vaccination list in his local GP. And they were sitting saying, oh, it's like, oh, do you not care about vulnerable people who, you know, need the vaccine? Uh, you know, what about other vulnerable people? What about the elderly? What about, you know, car workers? They kind of did this like moralistic sort of argument about, oh, what about our most vulnerable in society? Yet they were railing against him for going for vaccinating homeless people, possibly one of the most ho- uh, like vulnerable groups ever. You know, I know, I know this isn't within an Irish context, but it just kind of shows like the, the the depravity of some how these things are dealt with. I'm relieved by the fact that, as far as I know, uh, I'm ahead of all of you in the vaccine queue. So, <laughs> Why suck is that? It, losers. Are you frontline? I, I no, but I work in food production, so I'm mm, like okay. after frontline workers, I'm like there with sort of like essential to the running and maintenance of society. So, haha, I win. <laughs> no, I think I'm down like like March next year or something like you know. Yeah, same as myself. I, more I think I'm summer according to the the northern. Yeah, Apparently. summer. Why would that? Oh, because oh, you're in the because U- you're going to be in the UK. Hmm? All right, is that because yeah, you're going to be in the UK? Back in yeah, I'll be back Scotland? in Scotland, so I'll I I will ah, be qualified for the. Look. Yeah, but you'll be get that. You won't even get the license stuff. You're just, you're just putting anything <laughs> on people over there. So, so you'll all be able to go out, like, and and I'll be stuck in my house for another year, you know. Uh, but the time I'll I try, get out, like, I'll, I'll be an absolute someday if we can do some illegal. <laughs> yeah, I, I, like, I seen some. I seen a gas mm. clip. You know that uh, Simpsons clip where it's all the old people out on the streets dancing and stuff. They were saying that that's what's going to be like for the next three months. Just a lot of old people in the clubs, in nightclubs, and stuff like that. Like. Ultimately, like the whole, the more you read about the coronavirus, the more depressing it gets. And I try and do keep up with more positive aspects of it. You know, the developing of new vaccines, how different countries are dealing with it. I do feel like you need to do one positive bit of COVID news with like nine negative ones to kind of counteract it. Because it is so bleak listening to the entire thing. And uh, I don't know if anyone has seen the fact that sea shanties have became a popular meme recently. Have you? don't worry this links back so like um i think there was a video going around on tiktok of a guy sing, um singing a sea shanty and it just became this very popular meme yeah like john snow who's a channel four presenter getting involved in it but i saw this tweet the other day is like why are sea shanties popular again it's not like everyone is simultaneously experiencing a seemingly endless labor-filled test of their resolve 
<laughs> so I think that basically sums up dealing with the coronavirus but and like looking at how badly the Irish government is handling in it. And appreciating how solid gold sea shanties are. <laughs> I mean, they're fast. I, I, I'm really looking forward to when it's over. Like, I think I've been like on our de-socialised, whatever the word is, like, you know. And that, <laughs> you have no social skills anymore. Exactly. So like, oh, and, God, uh, it, it'll affect everyone at the same time. So when we all go back to work, like, you know, in the office, it'll be like, shut up, you know. <laughs> there'll be no, like, uh, there'll be no, like, uh, soft skills in terms of dealing with people it'll just be like straight up shit the fuck up. you know you know when your mum and dad used to bring you over to people's houses and you used to stand there with your hands in your pockets like kind of yeah look at the ground the floor awkwardly like yeah I feel like I'll just be like do you like hello fellow human I am a human do you consume food we should do it together <laughs> To be fair, the degree of socialisation prior to the pandemic was like going into the office and just talking about football. Did you see that match last night? Yeah, it was good. Oh, they were shocking or something like that. And then you just go to, mm. go to your desk. Yeah, anyway. you know, like your, your shit talking skills, like when, you know, people in your job are talking to you. You're just like, yeah, talking <laughs> football or talking about oh, this or that. Like, you know, you've totally lost them, you know. I think the big... We have these like real deep, meaningful conversations with people. Like, you know, <laughs> how are you? Well, I'll tell you the truth. <laughs> I, think <laughs> I think the biggest like shock after the pandemic's over and things like that it's going to be sitting in a pub like when was the last time you sat in a pub Mm, or do you ever watch weird. do you ever watch clips of people at gigs and stuff now and you can see them crawling all over each other and it just makes me so uncomfortable seeing people like it's on really top of each other stressful. now because I'm like yeah because I'm like stand apart yeah, yeah. put your do mask you not, like, on ever no watch, COVID like, you guys <laughs> shows from like the 1980s and you see them standing right beside each other and you just think like subconsciously yeah, oh they're not social distancing although y- you know your man Little Bow Wow do you remember that rapper Little Bow Wow yeah yeah I saw he played a something like like 20,000 crowd in America last night uh, in I'll look it up now which state but anyway like a full crowd no one with masks granting like that and people are saying like imagine sacrificing your life for Little Bow Wow <laughs> Little Bow Wow is the last day that's what you went out on Jesus yeah, call it death Little Bow Wow We'll put it in the show I think notes. I opened was playing little bow wow tunes. Um, <laughs> no, but anyway, I think we can uh, wrap things up there for the week. We'll be back next week with a few different things. We've a few episodes planned out, interviews and the like. So if anyone wants to find out about what was discussed today, they'll find a few li- links in the episode description along with our Patreon, which is majorly appreciated. If anyone wants to chip in, it helps the show keep going for a little bit longer. So thanks a million, everyone. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. I'm wasting away. I'm wasting. I'm wasting. I'm wasting away. I'm wasting. I'm wasting away.